Welcome to the See Me Now Special Edition Podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Coleman, here with my co-host, Caitlin Birdsall, and we are joined today by Professor of Spanish, Tom Acker. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So how, you've been here since 1999 Correct. on campus. How did you get into the world of Spanish? What, what intrigued you? What led to, to this career? Um, I was kind of a floundering high school student. And uh, when I got out of high school, uh, a family friend said that he could put me in a study abroad, not a study abroad, a, uh, a gap year program in, in Spain. And um, so I said, yeah, I'd like to do that. And so um, I went over there and um, Spanish people, especially in Southern Spain where I was, are really, really friendly and open. This is in the 70s, so it was a kind of a different world. And um, it was just really wonderful. It was a great eye-opener. The culture right away hooked me. And the warmth of the people um, is another aspect. I, I love that you mentioned that it was back in the 70s because I I actually haven't been to Spain, but I, I you know see photos online and I have friends that have been, so I get kind of a feel that way. But you've been back since the 70s. So what is, what is the difference between when you first went to what it's like today? Well, in the 70s, the dictatorship was still in, he died, Franco died in 75, and I was there in 73, 74, 75. And um, it was a whole different world. I mean, you had the, the police ever present, even the, the uh, international mailers that you would use to send letters. We used to write letters in those days <laughs> and you could open them up so that people could look in and see what you'd written. They didn't seal on all sides. And uh, I wrote stuff to, to, I had a girlfriend then and she said, you shouldn't talk about that thing. Uh, so oh, it was wow. a dictatorship. Mm -hmm. And then, you, you know, after that, there was the explosion. I was back there in uh, 2019 and they had a, a gay pride celebration in Madrid and I mean, can you imagine the difference between that and Madrid was filled? I think, I mean, I've never seen so many people in one place at one time. Gay pride. This is in the old dictatorship. It, they would have arrested you for being gay. So it's changed. Yeah. Wow. That's a, yeah, a big, a big change. So you said you went over after high school, correct? A gap yeah. year. How did your parents feel about sending you off, you know, out into the world? Were they international travelers or were they, no. you know, behind you doing it? Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. My older brother was, uh, he had returned from the Peace Corps mm. and he and I are about eight years different. And uh, he said, Tom's not doing much. Don't you think uh, he should look into this? Um, the reason he was able to do that because the the, per, the family he'd married into had a f uh, salad oil business and they bought olive oil from Spain. And so I went to this old Spanish kind of bottling plant and that's where I did my gap year. That's so interesting. I love getting to hear that, that backstory. And it's crazy to think that that one decision back then has led to now you know, your 40 plus year career of yeah, being yeah. involved in the Spanish speaking community and world and culture. Um, and it all started from that one, one moment. And, and one of the things that I often encounter is, you know, my students are just barely out of high school many times. And 
they may not be doing very well in a classroom setting. I didn't do very well in a classroom setting. Mm -hmm. And then if you do, if you're able to have the luxury like I did of doing an immersion, that's where it'll really hit. And, and you're right. It's a life changing. It could be a life changing thing. Mm-hmm. Is that something you encourage in your classroom? You know, you get these new students every year. And I imagine because it was such a monumental moment for you to go abroad and learn about different cultures, different people. Is that something you really push in your classes? And if so, how do you go about doing that? Um, I, I kind of do it organically. I don't have a we've spoken my colleagues and I have spoken about you know we need to be more intentional about this but I I basically would would you know if we're if we're coming across some food type and I say yeah the first time I ate this it was you know I didn't like it at all I developed a taste for it and those sorts of things or clearly cultural competency is one of the things we're trying to impart Um, and so I will often share cultural differences with with my students and those are the sorts of things that um, I hope little by little we could attract them. And I know we've kind of spoken a little bit about that. You know, it's not just about learning the language. Obviously, that's a big piece of it. But when we've been speaking, it's also about the culture and really immersing yourself in it. So what was it about the Spanish culture and the Spanish people in general that made you kind of fall in love with with it? Um, interesting, because in the 70s, <laughs> funny the, the way things you react to things but in the 70s um in the united states the fast food industry was taking over and society and and, and things were changing um it would be hard for me to impart to anybody that was you know born after that but you didn't have all these big box stores you didn't have all the the fast food places and i could i just felt that that was a very alien environment and so um, I rejected it in a, in a sense. And, you know, I was a little bit of a hippie and I wanted to, th- to live in a more... Matter of fact, I remember I was thinking of going to Costa Rica mm-hmm. um, to live on a commune. And I think that's part of what my parents <laughs> kind of went, no, we don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> and, uh, and so that may have been what, what caused me. But once again, Spain had yet to experience that uh, fast food, mm. big box... Everything was kind of small corner industry, businesses, etc. It was all who you know. Um, it was very paternalistic. Um, the guy that owned this, the business that I went to, Don Baldomero Moreno, was um, a close, uh, uh, he was close to the dictatorship. And so he kind of called the shots in the town. He was one of the big people there. And doors would open for me because I was affiliated with his his business. And I, I later analyzed that and thought, wow, that was pretty weird. Yeah, but in the moment, I'm sure you were, you know, a young kid. You're yeah. over in this foreign yeah. country. Yeah. You're probably excited for any doors that were opening up. True, mm-hmm. true. Um, and that, that had a negative side to it as well. I, I was later, I think I'll tell you, but I, I ended up going back and studying art in Spain and there was a, a fairly difficult process to get into the uh, school that would train you to take the exam to go into art school. And uh, it was a, a government-funded program. And I met a woman in a party the day before, coincidentally. And uh, I said I was applying to get to this school. And she goes, oh, yeah, I'm going there, too. Why don't we uh, go there? Oh, by the way, my father's the secretary there. And so I, I met her. And we walked 
And there was a line going all the way around the block. Mm -hmm. And she and I just walked in. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was just, that's the way things were done. It's who you were connected to. And uh, I don't think it's, it's that easy anymore, although it may be. But once again, that's part of this uh, who you know uh, dictatorship type ambiance that Spain was in those days. Mm -hmm. They said it was part of North Africa more than Europe. Hmm. Talking about different cultures kind of takes me back to my own experience of studying abroad. And I spent my middle and high school years in uh, Boise, Idaho. So not a lot of diversity um, there, especially back then. And I, I actually studied about in Australia. So there wasn't like a ton of um, change, like going to somewhere like Spain, the language obviously was the same. But I remember just seeing so many different types of people from all over the world that had moved to this city and how, how it opened my doors and changed the rest of my life um, by traveling abroad. And so when I think of your students, I, I think, does it, is it a certain type of student that goes into to Spanish to major? Or is it, are you, are you recruiting students, you know, that come in for general classes? Yes, we would love to recruit students. One of the things that is going on in the United States right now is um, obviously with the immigrant population growing um, and the fluidity of people coming into the United States from Mexico, um, both documented and undocumented, there's a huge need for interpreters and translators. And um, I would love to encourage number two different demographics, the, the bilingual young people coming in here mm -hmm. who've learned a lot of kitchen Spanish with mom and dad, and they're very conversant, have good accents and the whole bit. But it's like when we ask an English speaking student to study literature, they don't go, oh, why should I do that? I already, you know, I already speak English. And so one of the things that we struggle with is encouraging this first generation of immigrant youth that we have, you know, 20% Latino on our campus. We really would like to encourage them to take advantage of the skill that they are given, they are God-given, and develop it and work to develop high-proficiency, university-level Spanish, which requires developing vocabulary, developing good grammar skills, good writing skills, analytical skills, critical thinking, all of those things that we would encourage them to consider. And of course, English speakers coming in they have the challenge of developing up to the 300 level. And then at that point in our program, everything is taught in Spanish. And so... I actually read somewhere that, you know, there was a large percentage of um, immigrants who were coming here and they actually weren't teaching their, their, their kids how to speak their native language because they really wanted them to be fluent in Spanish or sorry, English. And so some of them actually, you know, are they're raised in this household where their parents are fluent in Spanish. That's their first language, but they actually don't know any of the language. And so I think that's such a valid point is that it's so important to keep that alive because there's so many careers that involve Spanish speakers. Sure. And I think we have to understand one of my students um, I won't use his name because I don't know how this would be received, but he was very, um, provided me a, an important insight that as a kid, he was often asked to interpret for his parents and interpret in really 
medical settings or bank settings or difficult, challenging vocabulary that he didn't know. He'd be learning things about his parents that he didn't know. And he was asked to interpret in that setting. And it was a very stressful and unpleasant experience for him. So when I approach him and say, well, you know, come on, let's, uh, let's think about becoming an interpreter. It would be really cool. And his first reaction was, why would I want to do that? It was so painful for me. That's one. The other thing that these students would respond to is, I think, in this United States of, the, of America, we are not welcoming to immigrants. Um, when I went to Spain, people, you know, the big gringo, let's, you know, receive the gringo guy. He's, you know, they're kind of goofy, but they're nice and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But here, when we receive people from other cultures, we're very suspect. We think they have an agenda. We've read all sorts of weird media things about them. And, and it creates an environment where if you're a speaker of another language, the only interpretation you have for your language is that it's been an obstacle. It has not been a betterment for you. And, and that's one of the things that I would love to be able to overcome and help these you know, young people understand that their language is, an, is a gift and it's a needed gift. If you talk to the language access folks in the court system in the state of Colorado, they will tell you Western Slope, Colorado, in fact, the whole state of Colorado, needs de- desperately needs interpreters and in the eastern part of Utah as well. So this is, this is an industry that's developing, and uh, I would really encourage my young folks to, to grab onto this. So I think that kind of segues into um, pretty nicely a lot of the different organizations that you're involved with. So I know you're involved in the Hispanic Affairs Project and the Colorado Human Trafficking Council, which is through the state. So I was hoping maybe you could talk to us a little bit about both of those organizations and maybe how you got involved or why you got involved. Yeah, so um, I had been involved with the immigrant rights Ever, since forever. Well, when I got back from Spain, I kind of jumped into it. Um, and this is, you know, early 80s, late 70s. And uh, so I was involved in that back east where I was a student. And when I came out here, it's a different environment altogether because you have the Chicanos who have been here for 500 years. And then you have recently arriving Mexicans. And so it's a really different environment. Um, it took me a while to figure it out. Um, but they were, again, they were welcoming, you know, you had the Spanish speaking guy, I have a skill set that they could use. And so we all kind of came together. And at that point I was involved with, uh, the Catholic church. Um, and you may be familiar with the liberation theology and the interpretation of the Bible and the acts as, um, the real deal. And we should be living it now. In fact, the Pope Benedict is, is a, a speaker of that language And uh, so the immigrant rights movement here on the West had a strong support from the Catholic Church. And we all got involved and we did marches and we demonstrated against the show me your papers legislation that was coming out of the Colorado State House at that time. Um, And from that, we established a more formal group. We, We established a 501c3. Uh, At that point, I was not on the board, but I later became a president of the Board of Hispanic Affairs Project. And uh, so we've been in existence for about 14 years. Through that interaction with the immigrant community, I was invited to go out on an outreach for uh, agricultural workers to interview them and conduct a survey 
administer a survey for Colorado Legal Services, which we did. And we interviewed sheep herders, range workers. And we interviewed about, um, uh, I would say, 200 people. And we, we, you know, asked them questions about their working conditions, their living conditions, their salaries, et cetera. And then we published it and we put it online. And it was a lot of people didn't even know that we had sheep herders here, much less the conditions they were working under, where they were working and getting $700 a month. And, you know, they had no control over their movements. So oftentimes their paperwork, their papers were um, not confiscated, but held in safekeeping by the employer. And that was, um, you know, you, in other contexts that could be interpreted as illegal, um, a form of human trafficking. And so out of that, I was invited to participate with um, uh, labor trafficking as having some insights into labor trafficking. I was invited to participate with um, the Laboratory to Combat Human Trafficking, and they conduct trainings in how to address human trafficking, how to identify it, etc. And I got trained to train people to understand what human trafficking is. And we established a local organization, Western Slope Against Trafficking, which is a local initiative, multidisciplinary. And so in all of those contexts, um, I can talk to my students that my language abilities have enabled me to enter this universe of uh, assisting with how we can address this crime, which, by the way, is going on here in the Western Slope and all throughout the state of Colorado. That's what I was going to say. That's probably one thing that I think most people maybe not that they're necessarily turning a blind eye, but you just don't think it happens in your community where you live. It always feels like it's a, a problem elsewhere. Or it's happening elsewhere. So I think that's really important for people to hear that and know that. Sure. And in fact, it's essential because the way the, that crime works, you gain people's confidence and trust by um, you can use different methods. But one of the methods is uh, you kind of become a friend of a family and you access the young people in the family um, and you could move that person easily enough into sex trafficking by different means. But that's one of the aspects of human trafficking that exists. And in fact, a paper I recently read um, spoke about the fact that in the Midwest, in small rural communities where people are open and, you know, receiving strangers, et cetera, and trusting, um, they are really good uh, hunting grounds for traffickers. And that's one of the things that our, the Colorado Human Trafficking Council is, has got a program which they're informing the community about this. There's all sorts of public uh, postings and online postings of how to find out more about it, what to do, who to call, etc. Would you say because, you know, faculty are experts in their fields that there's such an important role in going out into the community and being a part of it and helping it for and you know changing it for the better? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's um you know, again, because I'm an Hispanophile, I, I look at things a little bit from the Latin way of interpreting our existence. And in, in Latin America, universities are cutting edge. They are on the forefront of many social movements. Uh, the students in Chile got out on the streets and they literally shut the government down until they got free university tuition. Um, faculty were participants in that. Um, in the universities of Latin America, 
in Central America, in El Salvador. The Jesuits were assassinated by hit squads because they were so um, aggressive in their critique of the dictatorship and the use of military in the in the communities that they were teaching in. Um, and so the role of, of university professors, I would say, should be that, um, pushing society forward, um, not just informing, but encouraging to participate. What is the... What does the curriculum look like for maybe some listeners are wondering, oh, I have, you know, maybe myself or uh, a family member, somebody I know that would be interested in this? What, what can they expect if they do go into you, well, to this program? You know, there are people that come in with different um, levels of Spanish. Obviously, I was talking about the immigrant groups and, and, you know, people that have studied, you know, in bilingual cl- programs. We have DIA, Dual Immersion Academy here. So everybody comes in with a different skill set. And the first thing we're going to do is, well, why don't you take the placement exam that we offer, figure out where you want to be, um, come and visit with us and have a, a, a conversation. Um, we have, you know, baby Spanish. I call it baby Spanish. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> but we have 111, which is beginning Spanish, where you kind of get the fundamentals of the language. And it, I would often um, remind students that we're at university, so it's not going to be like you did in high school in most cases. There are many good high school programs. I don't want to be, um, you know, misinterpreted there. But I think in a high school setting, it's a different way of presenting information. Here we're trying to engage them. We're clearly trying to encourage them to keep moving up in, this, in the levels of Spanish to get up into the upper division. Um, so what you will typically have is a progression that goes from you know, teaching, uh, like cobbling together English and Spanish, little by little using more Spanish in the classroom, the 200 level using quite a bit of Spanish in the classroom. Then when you get up into the 300 level, we'll start using almost completely Spanish in the classroom. Um, and, and at that point, for example, I'm teaching history and culture. I will use only Spanish. So you're using the vehicle for imparting information and that's that's quite a leap, and that's quite a challenge for my students. And so, um, and as we're going along, we're trying to clean up language, you know, bad habits, you know, some holes in your grammar, as we would in a in an English um, composition class. The same idea. I have to say, one of my biggest regrets from uh, my university experience is that I didn't go and take a bunch of Spanish courses, you know, because I ended up moving to Nicaragua and I was there for a few years and I I ended up learning Spanish there because you don't have a choice. Um, But I think, yeah, having that base level even is is so important in today's world. Yeah, yeah. I I would say to, to, you know, avoid all that time and frustration that you would have had experienced in the beginning. If you could get up, like the, the ISEP program we have here, International Student Exchange Program, they ask that students have at least an intermediate level of foreign language before they go abroad. And I think that's a great idea, whether you're going to be studying just to navigate the cultures and you know interact with the culture. It's, it's recommended that they at least have a couple of semesters of Spanish or whatever foreign language it's going to be. Great. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. Yeah, thank you so much. This was really interesting to get to hear about your background and our Spanish program here at CMU and kind of what our students can expect and hopefully what they might get out of it if they do join the program. Yeah, if if people have any questions, please uh, reach out to Tom Acker 
hacker like cracker and uh, <laughs> shoot me an email or reach out. We'd love to have a conversation. This is See Me Now Special Edition. We spoke with Professor Acker today. You can listen to this podcast and other podcasts on See Me Now or on Spotify.